edit your own biases. Mm. Because if you ask a question with a conspiracy-laden issue, you'll hear it that way. If you literally come and say, I actually don't know or have an answer yet, can you tell me what you think about something? Then you can add all that to your own opinion. But I've seen questions asked with the leaning one way or another that tells me that they're only confirming what they want to believe or they already have an opinion that's, in some cases, already pretty solid. So just know when you ask a question, are you learning to confirm? Are you open-minded when you ask it? And are you listening more than you're talking when you ask a question? Because it isn't always a debate, and it is always two-way. If you really respect somebody by asking them a question like you're doing here for me, and I'm talking way too much, then let them teach you. Like a book gives you information, turn the page and ponder it and accept it or not. As a business leader, you know attracting top talent is just the beginning. Real growth happens when you lead yourself and others well. Creating a company culture that attracts, nurtures, and retains the best of all things. We'll teach you how to make an impact through a holistic leadership approach. Reframing success in leadership. This is the Talent Magnet Institute podcast with your host, Mike Sipple Jr., Hello, Talent Magnet community. I just wanted to uh, thank you for tuning in to this episode. You are going to hear from one of our faculty, Don Frerichs, who is leading an extraordinary leaders series as a part of the Talent Magnet platform. Don is one of our longstanding faculty members. He's an incredible coach, an incredible leader, and he is highlighting extraordinary leaders as a part of this series. So we hope you enjoy. Thank you for tuning in. And without further ado, I turn it over to Don. Thank you for joining the Talent Magnet Institute podcast. This is Don Frerichs, guest host for Mike Sipple. And today we are taping the Extraordinary Leader Series, the program that attempts to uncover what it takes to become an extraordinary leader. Today with me is my special guest, Richard Davis. Hi, Richard. Hi, Don. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. So glad you're with us. I think you had almost 40 year career in banking, right? I did. If we consider starting at 18, <laughs> <laughs> which is true, that's legit. <laughs> and today you're the CEO of Make a Wish. And what a special, special organization. I've got to ask about that. But before we do that, just to, so the listeners know, I worked with Richard when it was called Star Bank way before US Bank Corp was uh, the name that's of right. your organization. And Richard had a great banking career, uh, was fortunate enough to become CEO and then chairman of U.S. Bank Corp. I have to laugh because I think one time, Richard, you told me I, there are 73,000 employees that work for right. me. I said, oh, just a small job, huh? <laughs> yeah. and I, I like to say I knew every one of them, but we know that's not true. <laughs> but I've got to affirm you because after you left Cincinnati to go to Minneapolis, I would run into other uh, ex-star bankers or people that were still at the bank. And we would always talk about you. It was fascinating to me that we had the commonality of an experience at a company called U.S. Bank at the time, but right. before it was in other names. And we would always talk about Richard Davis. And so that's one of the reasons why I think, you know, you were an extraordinary leader. But here's how the story would go. It was marvelously the same story. Somebody would say, hey, guess what? I just ran into Richard two months ago or a year ago or whatever. I said, really? How is he? He's doing great because you are always positive. You're Mr. Positivity. And then they would say this, and this is almost to every person, Richard, they would say, and guess what? He remembered my name and he asked about my family and they would shake their head. How does he do that with so many wow. people? 
and you touch people's hearts. And I just have to say that to you because you, you have Thank no you. idea how many people would come up to me and we'd have that exact same conversation, of course, in different ways. That's because nice. Because that's what you authentically do. You connect with people at a very, very deep level. So I, I hope you, you can accept that affirmation because it's true and it's honest and it proves to me that you really Thank are you. an extraordinary leader. I would have come to this podcast earlier if I knew I was going to get bombarded with positives. <laughs> <laughs> that's the goal. So tell our listeners about Make-A-Wish. You made a big bet. Yeah. I thought you would just retire after U.S. Bank, but then all of a sudden I see notice that you're going to become CEO of Make-A-Wish, and I knew it had to be for a special reason because it's a special organization. Maybe you can help our listeners understand that right. and what you guys do. I'd be happy to. I'm going to go back to the, since this is a leadership discussion, I believed that in a senior position, in this case, CEO of a very large organization, I had stated a decade before that I would only be in the job for up to 10 years. That's my first lesson learned even before we get to make a wish, because I do believe that a really good leader starts to inspire and inform the way an organization runs because they have the permissions to do that. I also think an evolved leader says only for a while because the organization needs to breathe and thrive and nobody should do that too long. And I say that because I choreographed it to the best I could because the board of directors makes the decisions, not just me. And I expressed to them probably in my sixth or seventh year that we were coming to that moment in time. So A, we should think about succession. And B, we should determine if there's any particularly different traits and skills we have for what will be a future that we haven't seen yet. And that, of course, all occurred. But as it gets to my part of the story, I also made myself a promise I wouldn't find the other job that I knew I would do until I was fully gone from the bank. In other words, I didn't want to have my toe dipping into two places. I didn't want to take my eye off of what I had committed to finish. And I knew that it would be a not-for-profit role, God willing. I knew that it would be first derivative, because I think banking is a great example of really changing lives. It touches lives. It gives people confidence in an area that they need support in. Second to your medical provider, your financial advisor is your most important steward. And I felt great about all the things we did. And I would call that second derivative life-changing. You get into some of these beautiful not-for-profits that the world has, Make-A-Wish being one of them, it's directly changing lives. And there's something very exciting about that. So when I retired from the bank, I then, at that moment, put out the feelers, if you will, to the folks I've known for years and said, I would love to connect with a large not-for-profit if you can find one. Let's see. And the number came along. And as it turned out, Make-A-Wish was the one that grabbed my heart. And it did because, now I'll answer the question, because Make-A-Wish is a global institution that grants wishes to children who are critically ill. And I want to pull that apart just a little bit. It's global. We're in 40 countries. Started here in America, started in Phoenix, Arizona, where the first wish was granted in 1980. It became international 13 years later, and today it's Make-A-Wish all over the world. Make-A-Wish is a phrase. Make a wish, but it's all that goes behind it. It's the magic. And easily put, Don, children who are facing critical illnesses, some which could be fatal, many which may not, upon the notice of their circumstance, whether they're born with it or whether it comes into their life at an early age, they need, first of all, their parents and their family and their friends. They need their caregivers and the physicians. They need the community of support around them. And then lastly, we believe they need hope. And that's what we are. We're the hope part. And so it's been proven again and again, we have granted over 500,000 wishes in 40 years across the globe. Each is unique to its own story. 
each has a remarkable impact on the lives of not just the child, but of course the family and in the greater organization and community. But it's been proven in the annals of medical history that the wish can be as powerful as any medicine. And in fact, the cognitive impact of a child, first of all, having something to pick, something to look forward to, something to experience, and in many cases look back on, is as important as any part of the therapy they will go through during their journey. And at the end of the day, it captures everyone else along the way with this wonderful belief that there's hope and there's this community of people around the world that don't have to know the child that will support them and be part of their future. And if you ever think about return on investment, there could there be a better one than an investment in a child who will undoubtedly, no matter how long they live, pay it back. And so it's very, very special. Wow, what a wonderful pivot and transition for you. I imagine you probably have a story or... <laughs> yes. Do you have a favorite story that maybe the listeners would like to hear? I, there's probably so I'll, many, but it's hard to... I'll, I'll give you one because it embodies what I said a moment ago, but this is a young girl who lived in the Boston area. Her wish was to have Fenway Park in her backyard. And Fenway Park, for those of you who don't know, is one of the most revered baseball stadiums in America, one of the oldest. And it has a thing called the Monster, which is a green wall where actually the score is changed by hand. You know, it's a very manual process. The long story made short is her backyard wasn't very big. It was before me decided to have a wiffle ball set up so that it would be reasonable. The chapter of Make-A-Wish, who knows everybody in the Boston area, because that's their job to know, contacted the owner of the Red Sox. The Red Sox then called the grounds crew and said, do whatever you need to do to make this happen. And they did. And they brought in miniature bags made by the same producer of the bags at Fenway Park. It's the exact same grass, the same dirt. They created a small monster the green monster and the story is lovely because in this case they had the opening day everyone was there in this case the young gal did not live more than a year after the circumstance but 70 percent of the children by the way graduate to adulthood so in her passing the funeral of course and the service this happens a lot replete with pictures and moments that are all around the make-a-wish moment that's when everyone remembers the happiness no matter how difficult that circumstance was. And I closed because in the front row of the church was the family members. And in the second row was the Fenway Park grounds crew. So it embodies how it touches so many people. And no matter what, we celebrate whatever impact that had, not just on the child, but the people around it. So it's a very beautiful organization that has paid it forward written all over it. That's fantastic. You said it brings hope and I'm not surprised that you're working in an organization that brings hope to 40 countries. So good job. Right. Thanks for using your leadership in a well-mannered <laughs> way. It has a lot of hope. Right? <laughs> the world needs a lot of hope for sure. Going back to your childhood, things were not easy. And I don't think everybody understands they see somebody as successful as you. And they think, well, you know, the guy probably started with his parents having gone to Harvard and he had a lot of money and probably had uncles that were able to show him how to be a great leader. And they were all in banking. So he got his first job that way. But that's not the truth of your story at all, is it? No, but I don't wear it as a badge of honor because first of all, I didn't even know there was anything else as you're growing up. And my dad was a truck driver, a mother, a school secretary. She was high school educated. He was eighth grade educated, lovely people, salt of the earth, worked, both of them worked full time so that we wouldn't be wanting for anything. I was a latchkey kid before there was the phrase latchkey because I was always going home by myself every afternoon. But suffice it to say, what they did inspire in me was just by their role modeling, just hard work. 
they weren't profound. They weren't provocative. I don't have a bunch of great one-liners. We didn't have any experiences that were necessarily remarkable. And then when I was time to go to high school or college, there was no real extra money. So I worked eight years at night school to get my degree. Also, not a badge of honor, just four nights a week. I would work all day then go to class from 7 to 10 p.m., do my homework, go home, start it all over again. But what I did learn, this is my big aha in this story, Don, is I got some of the best education you would ever get. And this is not to diminish the remarkable, high-quality education you can get in some of the greatest universities around the globe. But since I wasn't given that option, I went to a state university at night and was taught entirely over eight years by adjunct professors. Almost never a full-time tenured professor who would want to come to a night class. And as it turns out, I got taught by practitioners and by real-world examples. And did I not know until now, that was the best way to learn because these were men and women coming from their day job, for whatever reason, choosing to impart their own skills and teaching a bunch of interested and, I'll say, hungry learners how the world works. So for me, it was a blessing. And I noticed it right away, right when I got into the, into the business world. I was going to school at night while I was working. And I would come back with questions at the class saying, hey, I work at this company. How do you guys figure out things like how do employee benefits weigh in decisions on how much to pay? I mean, stuff that just came right out of the real world. So I was blessed with a early education on real world. It's interesting how you just took what some people might see as a big challenge in life that they couldn't go to uh, college and go to daytime school and have classes from professors. You just flipped the whole thing <laughs> with your positivity and say, well, you know what? I actually, I got a lot more out of it because I was taught by practitioners. I just love what you just did there. I don't know if the audience, I wish they could see your face because that's what you do. You are quick to <laughs> see the silver lining and everything. But and hold on, but, but I didn't even know there was another lining. So I just wanted, it's not that provocative. I mean, until you get into real world, you go, oh, wait, there are those other institutions? And wait, you sitting next to me, Don Ferrick, went to Harvard and you've had all these benefits? As long as at that moment, it's that moment that you decide whether or not you were a benefactor or not. And if you can stay on the, I got what I got and I'm happy to have had it and not covet what somebody else had. And that is the moment of truth because it comes a little later. That's where I think you measure what matters most is when you have the comparative moment in time. Yes. I love what you're saying. Moment of truth. As your life goes on, you're obviously a banker as a teller yeah. when you're 18 years old. So for those of us that, I guess we don't call them tellers anymore. Sorry, that was the old term. What do we call them today? I don't know. I think it's still teller. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> I think so. Okay, so Customer service representative. Thank you. The people that you go into your branch to see that take care of you. That's what Richard right. was at 18 years of age, right. how he learned initially the first part of banking. And you right. had lots of questions, just like you had questions for your adjunct right. professors. You seem to be always curious about what's going on. And right. I guess you get noticed after a little while, right? You started getting some promotions. And I sure. know that part of your story is that you're getting promoted, but you're being asked to manage people that are much younger than you oh, are. Yeah. And so I think the story goes, you said, okay, how do I do this? I don't know as much as they do. I don't have as much experience. I think you were struggling with trying to find a way. And, and one of those ways had something to do with leadership. Is that true? Yeah. Let's unwrap that a little bit longer, though, because the first benefit to share with the listeners, I think, 
is that I never, in my early days, never sought any next promotion. I simply put myself out there to be open to any next promotion and wait for it. If I had a core of friends that I was in the same you know level at, let's say there were five of them, all five of them got promoted sooner than I did. If there were 10 of them, all 10 of them. I was the last to be promoted because I kept taking lateral positions that were made available to me. And this was not profound either. I wasn't thinking ahead. Hmm, I think I'll take lateral positions so I can go up one day. I just did it because I wanted to learn. And as it would turn out, think of a building, Don. And if you build a foundation, X wide, you can go so high. But if later in life you want to go higher in the building, you'll regret you didn't build a larger, wider foundation. Yes. And so probably more by accident in the beginning, more intentionally later, I passed on lots of promotions so that I wouldn't be isolated or pillared into one skill set too soon. And I became more of a jack of all trades. I made less money in the beginning, but I established my ability to, in baseball, there's a utility player, which is a person that can play a lot of different positions and coach can put you in in a number of places. And I think I started to see that as a benefit. I also have talked about this to many of the young bankers as I was growing up. And I would say, your parents will hand you what I'm going to say next, but don't set goals, just set a direction. Because if you set a goal, you'll find yourself limiting what's possible. And by the time you get there, there may have been much better places to arrive. And so just decide you're going this direction and be open to all possibilities. And so let me make that more, more descriptive. One thing I love and hate about GPS, and for the listeners who are any bit older than, I don't know, 40, you'll remember we used to actually pull out a map and get lost all the time. So true. The benefit of GPS is it gets you there efficiently and effectively. The problem is you have no idea where you are and you arrive, and you have no context to where you are. So if I had to look at a map, I'd say I'm passing by three different lakes. I'm going to be passing by two big cities. I have opportunities to stop if I like, but when I finally get there, I've arrived. GPS says 181 miles, stay on this road till you get there. And so if you set the goal, you'll get there fast. But if you're open to just going that direction and keep your eyes on the off-ramps and look at the options, it actually might be a more inspired trip. And that's the best way for me to describe it. So number one, getting there fast isn't the goal. Even getting there isn't the goal. It's getting that direction because so many things happen. And never mind, time passes. So if I set a goal as a 28-year-old, that by 32, I'm going to be in this job. The way the world moves today, that job may not be there when I get there in four years. And there's 15 better ones that came along that I didn't even notice because I was so laser-focused on one. So that starts that. The answer to your question, though, is when you are allowed to do different jobs, by definition, I was never more experienced than anybody I managed. Because I was brought in to start leading people who did the work. And my first recognition was, the well, first thing was I grew a mustache as a young kid so that I have the slightest bit of gravitas. <laughs> and I look back and it was hideous, but it seemed to work in my mind, give me a little bit of credit. But what I did was I just called it out every single time. And I can't remember any exact time, but I'm sure every time I'd say, I'm so delighted to be invited to be part of this team. I want to be a good leader. I want to lead because I want you to be part of the team. I want to establish myself as an open door for ideas. But the fact of the matter is, I have never going to have the experience you have in doing what you're doing. And all of you should be revered and credited with that. So my job is like a conductor. I remember saying this really young. I was music was my passion. I can never pursue it. But if listeners will permit me here, a conductor 
is the best way of thinking about leading no matter what your age or what your experience. So let's debrief that for a minute. Everyone's probably been to a concert somewhere in their life. And if you arrive early, and you should arrive early, you are greeted with this horrible set of noises coming from a stage as the players are practicing. They're not even tuning. They're all just practicing their riffs. They're getting their reeds prepared and all of that. The drums are in the back pounding away. And if you didn't know about it, you think, well, this isn't going to be pleasant. And then the lights go down. They stopped making noise. This person, woman or man, with no credentials whatsoever, established at that moment in time, walk onto the stage, face the audience to rousing applause. Now, they've done nothing, and they haven't performed at all. And they turn around to a willing group of musicians. And with nothing more than a stick in their hand, they raise the stick in the air, and when they bring it down, beautiful music. So let's think that through. Number one, the conductor didn't play one instrument during that entire event to prove that they were a musician. They didn't favor any one instrument because they're better at one or another. What they did establish is we presume that after their great coaching and practice and their ability to bring the best out of every player, we enjoyed this remarkable music. And when it's over, that same conductor turns around to the first applause and then secondarily greets the audience to thank the players. So if you think of yourself as a conductor, you don't have to play all the instruments. You don't even have to play most of them. But you need to be able to get the most beautiful music out of each of those who do. And many times you practice them separately, only to bring them together at the end to perform the ensemble. So my thinking is, doesn't matter your age, doesn't matter your experience. Admit that you are in a situation that is important for people to recognize. Congratulate people having the skill that they have. Trust that they believe that you have a skill to bring the best out of them. And that's a really good place to start. And that was the approach that I used. And most of the time it worked pretty well. It's amazing to me. I love the story. I just can't believe that you had that epiphany that you should say that to people. That had to take a lot of courage. I would think that most people hearing you say, I'm going to tell a new department that I just took over, a new organization that I don't know as much as they do. Right. I'm going to be the conductor. Most of you are like, are you kidding me? I don't have the courage <laughs> yeah. to say That's crazy. I may sound elegant, but let's go back and see what you said. It's true. Mm-hmm. And they know it. So you can either make them tell you or prove it, or you can just tell them. I mean, it isn't that sophisticated to say, look, clearly I'm coming from this department. For some reason, they've asked me to come in and be part of this. I'm excited to be part of your team. Thanks for knowing what you do. I guess the other parable I would share here as a thought is when I was a young manager, I would often meet people and I would, in this case, the bank, I would go to different locations and I'd say, hi, Don, you know, tell me about you. I've been with the bank for seven years, Richard, and I love what I'm doing and blah, blah, blah. Well, I would always start on the teller side. We've established that was my original job. I would never go to the management side first because I really wanted to meet the people who were doing the really hard work. But then when I would get to people, I would see them in jobs for a long time. And my biggest mistake, earliest mistake was I would say, so Don, you've been a teller for how long? I've been here for 16 years. God, Don, thank you for that. That's great. And then I would mistakenly say, what would you like to be doing in 10 years? And what I misread in my early years was that not everybody wants to do something different. In fact, many people just want to be appreciated and confirmed for doing what they're doing. And boy, did I learn that really fast. So the next time you say 16 years, I'd say, first of all, thank you for that. Clearly, you found something you love. And then they would usually say, I love this job, and I hope I can do it for the rest. And, and it was often I would get a reaction like, wow, you're not asking me if I should want for more or if I'm supposed to want to do something different. Because I really like this. 
And so I learned to ask people how they love what they're doing instead of presuming that everybody wants to keep moving and wants to move up. And that's a really important distinction because you can't be a leader if people don't want to follow. And good followers only follow good leaders, but they're willing to do that because they don't want to lead. And that's okay, too. There's not a better or a worse. It's just an important distinction to know what people want. Good followers do follow uh, well. And I think good leaders are good followers also. They know when to lead and when to follow. I like what you're saying, though. I want to go back a little bit about the learning. So you saw something that you had asked others, and it didn't land as well. And you must have noticed something, what, about their face, their nonverbals? Maybe they didn't respond to you with the kind of energy. And then your brain says, oh, maybe there's something else I should be asking about or focusing on, right? That moment of of (laughs) truth that you talked about before, something occurred to you, and you caught it, right? Yeah, and it took a long time. This was not like one conversation or one day. But I started realizing for the first time I was imposing my own expectations of myself and assumed everybody else had it. And this, my best example was when I would say to somebody, so what do you want to do five years from now? Presumption is clearly you don't want to be doing this. So I think I'm provocative. by saying, give me a sense of where your direction is because I've talked about how I feel that direction. And the reaction was often disappointment in the question because the reaction would be something like, well, I really like this job, like almost like, what am I supposed to say to you? And then I would also find people, you know, alternative, let's go to the other side. Hi, Don, nice to meet you. So tell me about yourself. Well, I've been with the bank for seven years. I've been in this job for seven months, but I can't wait to go over there and do their job. And my answer would be, well, certainly you want to get really good at the job you're in, think your performance and musician. And we will, I'm sure, want to help you make that step when it's right. But here's my follow-up was always this, too. I would say, we don't read minds. I said this more times than anything I've said in my management life. We don't read minds. So don't leave it to us to figure out what you want to do next. Find the right way in the right position to let it be known that you're eager to do something else one day. But don't push it. Don't do it before you've earned the right. Don't try to jump ahead of somebody else. But please don't leave an organization and then you leave in the exit interview. Well, Don, why are you leaving? Well, you know, I always wanted to go do this job, but they never made it happen. And if you ask again, say, well, did you ever let anyone know? Well, no, they were supposed to know. Companies don't read minds, neither do leaders. So part of that, managing your own career, is let it be known in the right way at the right time that you love what you're doing and you'd love to do something else one day too. That's the corollary to not wanting to go somewhere else. Let it be known to the right way. And I'll give you a hint. Your boss's likelihood of transitioning out of your life is four times faster than their boss. And so if you put all of your knowledge into your boss and never get yourself known to or even aware of the person above them, you have that critical path where they leave and you look around going, I don't know anybody where my advocate is gone. And so along the way is ask somewhere along the way to say, I love working for you, Don. We both work eventually for Sheila. I'd love one day, if nothing else, you can make sure that I meet Sheila because I like her to just know that I'm here. And Don doesn't mind if he's not politically worried about that. And it helps him when he wants to promote me because Sheila is going to be the one to agree to. Or when you leave, I might take your job and I don't have to meet Sheila for the first time. So there's a control you take on your way up the ladder, which is to presume people don't read minds, but being tactful and using discretion to make it clear you like to do it. But only when you've been in a place long enough to earn the next step. Great advice for our listeners, Richard. You're so right. It's just one of those things a lot of us don't do well. We don't know how to advocate, so we don't. And there's some courage that is required for it. So sometimes we shy away from being direct enough and 
what I hear you saying is like, you own that. That's responsibility that That's you right. own. If you're going to have a career and you want it to come together, you're going to have to advocate for yourself. And I know it's not easy, so I'm not making it sound easy. And I'll tell you what, the way forward isn't to gossip and to work with all of your peers to either rabble rouse or try to create conspiracy theories. I promise you that is a certain way not to be a leader in the future because that happens, but leaders don't participate in that. They also don't get in the group and say, we should stop doing this. You can't do that with your peer group. But you just decide where you spend your energy. Because if you really want to be a leader, one day you'll be the people they're talking about. And if you do really well, they'll have less to talk about. So true. You've said a couple of times, and I hope our listeners are picking up that I learned something. I learned something. And I think this is so true of who you are. I believe extraordinary leaders are extraordinary learners. But I know when we talked before, you had a very strong sense about three core things to leadership that you look for in every person that you promoted. And at the time, I think you even labeled them as biases. I don't know if you would do that today with all the things that have happened in our country, yeah. but yeah. that kind of gave me a sense of why you felt so strongly about these things. Not that they are, but you look for these three things. And is that still true to you today? And could you just help yeah. our listeners learn from that? This is me hoping that the same three you're thinking of. <laughs> no, they should know we didn't choreograph any of this. That's right. Let me say this. It is based on my age in part, but it was prima facie knowledge that really good leaders have to have a certain IQ, an intellectual skill, a knowledge, and the ability to be thoughtful. That lasted for, gosh, most of the last 50 years. And I would say 10 years ago, just to put a time on it, we all introduced the idea of EQ. And EQ is emotional quotient. It's the ability to get people, to get your surroundings, to listen with a different ear, to say, I'm not just existing, but I'm engaged in my environment. And those are the people that people like to be around because you get me. You're listening. It's another form of listening and reacting, but it's a very thoughtful way of being. It's not just book smarts. It's people smarts, if I can put it that way. Yes. And then in the last couple of years, I do remember telling you, in the last couple of years as the CEO of the bank, I was engaged with some of the large corporate CEOs and what was called the Business Roundtable or the Business Council. And we are together a few times a year with the ability to teach each other how to be better. And there was this one time we were speaking to what people attract us as CEOs of large companies. Who is it we're attracted to? And we actually created this in this conversation. It was a panel discussion, so we didn't come in with the answer. We came out with, we coined a thing called CQ, Curiosity Quotient. And we all agreed that all things equal, we love curious people the most because they're the ones you want to be around. They're the ones who say, I like what we're doing, but I'm always wondering, is there a better way to do it? Or I like where we are, but clearly the world's changing, so we need to change with it. Or I think we've got an answer here that we deserve to develop further because I think there's more than meets the eye. The CQ is where I will leave you as the third trait. They're not in order. They just came about in a different time. There might be another cue coming up in the future. It might be a social cue as you think about it. But curiosity is, I'll put it this way, Don, when you learn something, there's three reasons to learn. One is to just learn it and know it. The second is learn it with the intent to teach others, which is an entirely different way to learn it because you got to get it and get it enough to share it. And the last one is learn it with the intent to act. And that's really big. Because it's enough to know it, it's enough to tell others, it's a, but it's a really enough until you do it. And so that's part of curiosity, which is I don't want to just walk around with more information in my head. I don't just want to be able to tell people I, I know it. I actually want to inform the way I live my life because I'm better informed. 
So that all kind of comes back to the same thing of being not just smart enough, not being people enough, but being curious enough to therefore intend to impact the world you're around. Those are the three things, by the way. So oh, good. Because <laughs> if they weren't, give me a quick clue. <laughs> Perfect. I mean, I just love the confluence between those three things because you have to have all three. I don't hear you saying one's better than the other. No, no. They need to all be there. Talk to me a little bit about development, though, and especially what you just said about learning with the intent to act. Can a leader use that learning with the intent to act to develop more EQ and CQ? Have you seen that? And from your own experience, now, honestly, you know, do you you notice that? Because I know you've surrounded yourself with a lot of smart people in all the roles you've had. I know that's always been there. But have you actually noticed anybody improve their EQ and CQ or is it fixed? Oh, yeah, yeah. So in this case, the audience, the people you're leading indelibly change the way they act because you're giving them permission by saying it that way. So at Make-A-Wish, we have a CEO summit where we have all of them together. I used these same three words just the other day. And I said, I want you to learn. I want you to learn because you got a lot of people that need to understand this. I need you to learn with the intent to teach. And then I want you to do something with it. And so the last one is the one that moves it to action. Yeah. I want you to do something with it. That's why we're giving this to you. And since you're by definition, a leader, based on the conversation we're having, leaders need to create followers and people want to be led. But you have to do it with the intent. And I can't even tell you how much that changes because CQ then comes out because curiously, if I'm going to have to teach this, can I ask a follow-up question? Or if I'm going to have to do something with this, can I check for understanding? EQ is if I'm going to teach or lead, I have to get the element of emotion. I have to know why I would motivate anyone or why they'd be inclined to want to do something. And the IQ would be just to teach or the learn to learn. Mm-hmm. So I just put phrases around learn to learn as IQ, learn to teach as EQ, and learn to act as CQ. We did not talk about that before. No, I like that. That's a good spin. <laughs> yeah. That's very good. So help me with this because I think we might disagree on this. Disagreement's good. So, you know, we're friends and we can go there. I tend to lean pretty heavily towards leaders can be and are developed more yeah. than they're born. And I think you lean more towards leaders are more born than developed. Maybe I'm wrong. Correct me if I'm wrong, first of all. But second of all, help our audience understand why that's so true for you. And I think actually yeah. both things can be very true. But if you could just... Yes. Perspective. I'm going to say that I'm just slightly on the side you put me on, but just slightly. So it's not a binary and you didn't say that. Otherwise. Right. Look, first of all, I said it earlier in my teller example, not everyone wants to be a leader. So there's no failure in choosing not to lead. But yet we, the whole world sets it up that way. If you're not the one picking teams on the basketball court when you're seven, then you're a follower. And that's bad. And it's not. So I really, really want to hone in on the fact that it's thank, thank God everyone doesn't want to be a leader. What a mess. Um, so number one, I think everyone's not a born leader. And I think that's just fine because if they find their place in life, good for them. If I said to you, I want to motivate you. Mm. It's the same thinking. Can I motivate you? I don't know, but you can motivate you. Yes. And so that's kind of a, a series on this theme is that I don't believe I can motivate you. But if I take a little time to figure out what moves your needle, what excites you, what might get you going, then I will present that to you and you will motivate yourself. Yeah. So I do think that people have leadership traits and many people are just very lucky to be in early stage leadership moments that they're exposed to. 
but they aren't leaders naturally. They are inclined to see information that they can cobble together and then have to give permission to be a leader. You can't be a leader if someone says, I want no one to lead today. Well, I want to lead. Well, I don't want you to lead. Everybody be the same, hold hands and circle or be one and the same. But when you've given permission and you have the inclination to lead, then I think it's good leaders that keep pulling that out of people. But as I said more than a few times on this call, you don't want everyone to be a leader and don't set it up to leaders win, followers fail. Bad paradigm. And it's everywhere in the world. And it's something we really need to watch for. It's a great point. So many traps in that thinking that you're so right. For our listeners, I think there are probably many people, Richard, who are thinking like, okay, I've heard so many things today that can be helpful. But because of the rate of change and the rate of business today being so much more than 20 years ago and even 10 years ago, as you've alluded to, how does a person looking to grow their leadership skills in your mind best do that today? What could they do to focus and accelerate their development as an authentic leader, someone that wants to be extraordinary in that that domain? Do you have any perspective that might be helpful that we could share? Yeah, let's change the paradigm first, though. Is it harder, busier than it was in the old days? I don't think so. I'm betting that if I was an executive in 1960 with all the things coming out with computers and, I don't know, hate Ashbury and drugs and war, I think we keep talking ourselves that it's so different or we're so fatigued, it's so tiring. Forget COVID, by the way. I'm going to jump in on that one. That's torture. But for that, okay? So it's not important actually how it compares to times. What matters is how you feel about now. That's kind of my first paradigm set. The yeah. second one is the, is the paradigm we set up, curiosity. So I have three adult kids. Along the way, they are all different traits, different skills. The one thing I said to them is, I want you every single morning, one's a teacher, one's an attorney, one's an accountant. I mean, talk about not getting them very far from the more interesting jobs in this world. But each of them, I said from the very beginning, and it's free, every morning I want you to go to wsj.com and see what the world's thinking about this morning. Mm. You don't have to read the whole story. You can just see what are the topical issues. And then you will be curiously interested to see more. And by the way, I promised I would help them get a subscription if they wanted to go more. But you don't have to get that just to read this. And secondly, be an informed participant in society today. So it's Tuesday. And I don't know, my daughter is a school teacher. And somebody says to her, did you hear about what happened this morning where the Fed decided not to support the banks any longer. It's the first headline, I think, on the current news. She doesn't have to be a banker. She doesn't know about it. But if somebody said it, she goes, yeah, I did read about that. And all of a sudden, you're in the position of, I have the starting point to have a conversation. Oh, no, I didn't know that. And I'll say this laughingly, but you can also read people.com or whatever it is entertainment.com. That's interesting too, because you're more interesting to people when you know things that are less important. But my point, Don, is I think people need to stay informed. And informed, you did say it moves fast. Used to be read the paper in the morning. I'm just saying go online and read. You can pick whatever you want. There are leanings that are left and right. I pick the Wall Street because it's usually more central. It doesn't throw in too much politics, but pick what you want. But just be informed and be hungry enough to say, I'm going to brush my teeth. I'm going to put on my clothes. And it'll take me 60 seconds. I'm going to take a quick peek to see what the world's thinking about before I hit my day. It's the best 60 seconds of the day. And then you walk in with a sense of, I can help in any conversation, or at least I have something to offer. Somebody says, so what's on your mind? Or what are you thinking about today? Yeah, it's like people would say to me all the time, what book are you reading? And I worked really hard to see what the 
New York Times bestsellers were because I'm actually not a book reader. It's not my thing. I don't curl up to a book and love it. I read business books. So I would often see what was on the top 10 so that I could read the excerpts. So at least I could say, well, I've seen that this one's out there and I might want to read it later. But I always had to go inform myself because I didn't want to be left uncovered. So part of it is just curiosity enough to know what's going on. And it's not a heavy lift. I agree. I know you've said before that the best leaders are curious leaders. It ties into your CQ quotient. I would think one of the things that listeners could easily do would be just to ask more questions and to have that curiosity you had as a teller when you were 18 years old and and you had throughout your career. We're just curious about everything and just seek out people that have the experience that you want to have. Or if you can go to lunch with a great leader, as you and I used to do, and just talk about things and be curious about what that great leader does. To me, that would be an easy way to kind of get into development as long as they were, as you said, hungry about learning about leadership. You didn't ask it yet, but, and also edit your own biases. Mm. Because if you ask a question with a conspiracy laden issue, you'll hear it that way. If you literally come and say, I actually don't know or I haven't an answer yet. Can you tell me what you think about something? Then you can add all that to your own opinion. But I've seen questions asked with the leaning one way or another that tells me that they're only confirming what they want to believe or they already have an opinion that's in some cases, already pretty solid. So just know when you ask a question, are you learning to confirm? Are you open-minded when you ask it? And are you listening more than you're talking when you ask a question? Because it isn't always a debate and it is always two-way. If you really respect somebody by asking them a question like you're doing here for me and I'm talking way too much, then let them teach you. Like a book gives you information, turn the page and ponder it and accept it or not. And I would also say to our listeners, uh, as we start to wrap up, Richard, that one of the things that you have been a great example to the whole world is that, as you said, you were the last to be promoted and that you didn't really set goals, you set a direction. So if our listeners are trying to become better leaders so that they get promoted, I get that. That's normal that you would think that. But what I heard you say today for our listeners is, hey, set the direction. Don't worry about the next promotion. Don't worry to be the first person to get promoted. Really work on who do you want to become and what does that look like? And then go wide. Don't go deep in one particular area, but be more of a generalist, at least initially in your career, so that you can build a better foundation. And that's heavy lifting because it's a loss of early financial income. It looks, I wouldn't say cowardly, but it looks less assertive. And in a world of people like assertive people, I'm just one guy. It worked for me. And I'll tell you, if I hadn't had that long, wide foundation, I don't know how much further I could have gone. And I wasn't trying to build it. As I said, it was more accidental. One of my favorite sayings, Don, I don't have a lot of them, is it's important to know when you're lucky and when you're smart, because you can be both. But smart is sustainable, lucky is not. And so it's important to take your luck and use it, but don't count on it. Go out and create your future, create your next step. And if it's to do more of what you're doing and do it greatly, let that be just as good as to do more things than you're doing today. They're both equally valuable. Amen to that. Well, I feel lucky that we were able to connect today. I know that you're super busy and that COVID must be uh, wrecking still a lot of havoc in your plans to to make a wish the best organization that it can be. So thank you for being with us and, and sharing your wisdom with us. It's been so enjoyable to connect again. I'd like to say to our listeners, if you have a question, you can pose that question by going to talentmagnetinstitute.com and right. you can actually leave it verbally. Richard and I would be more than glad to receive any of your questions and try to provide a, a worthy answer. But Indeed. thank you for uh, being with us today, Richard. It's been enjoyable. 
Well, Don, it's an honor. It really is. And for anyone to ask anybody else their opinion for this long, it's a real honor. And knowing you, I would do anything for you, my friend. So thank you for this opportunity. You're so very kind. Well, thank you very much. And goodbye to our listeners. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Talent Magnet Institute podcast. Make sure you subscribe so you never miss an episode and help spread the word by leaving a review. The Talent Magnet Institute podcast is powered by Centennial, a talent strategy and executive search firm, and the Talent Magnet Institute. You can engage with us at Talent Magnet I on Twitter or Talent Magnet Institute on LinkedIn and Facebook. Please communicate by using hashtag Talent Magnet. Find us in your favorite podcast app to subscribe, rate, and leave a review, as well as share with a colleague. You can also listen at talentmagnetpodcast.com. Our podcast studio is based in greater Cincinnati, Ohio. We are supported by our listeners, clients, and partners from all over the world. The Talent Magnet Institute podcast is made possible by a great team that includes Janelle Spence and Christine Lewis of Centennial, Josh Chappelle and Adam Smith of Soundpress, produced by Chris Madine of New Fidelity Studios, and Audra Casino and Megan Doherty of One Stone Creative. Music written by DJ Corbett and Chris Madine. And myself, your host, Mike Zippel Jr. Thank you for joining us on the journey of developing leaders to succeed in relationships, work, community, and life, reframing success in leadership.